0: Good morning. We are glad that you are here. Uh, if you're a visitor with us this morning, uh, we want to let you know that we really do count it a privilege to, to worship with you. Um, Clint mentioned this kiosk at the end, but that's a great place to get information, to get plugged in, to learn what life groups are, to learn what's going on in the life of this body. This morning, we're continuing our series about spiritual gifts, and we're going to be in Romans 12. So y'all can turn there, and I'm going to open with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Lord, we come to you humbly this morning, and we are thankful for our time together here. Uh, Lord, we um, I pray that our hearts are primed and, and ready to consider the deep love that you have shown us, uh, especially in light of what we have already sung this morning. Lord, in a morning where um, there's no doubt plenty of other things on our mind, plenty of distractions... Um, school starting tomorrow, teachers going back to work in a new way, um, children getting ready, school supplies to be taken care of, schedules to be figured out. Lord, I pray that this would be a special time where rather than allowing the other details to, to drown this part out, that maybe this part could better inform all the other details. Lord, I, I cannot work that. None of us can make that happen and force that to happen. But by the power of the Spirit, I believe that can happen. So we humble ourselves before you this morning, and we ask for that. Lord, we also ask for, um, we just want to pray for another pastor and another church in the community. We pray for Highland Terrace, and I pray for uh, Pastor Chet Haney. Um, It was good to get to meet him this weekend and to see his heart for his people, to see his heart for the church, to see his love for you. I pray that you would bless Highland Terrace. I pray that as they're gathering this morning that they're enjoying you in a robust way. I pray for Pastor Haney as he um, brings the word that it would be a product of sweet time that he has gotten to spend with you. I pray for his marriage that it would be healthy, that you would help them to continue to live together in that understanding way so that their prayers are never, ever hindered. Lord, I'm thankful to have a teammate like him in this city and thankful for the... um, the way that their church loves this city. Lord, we also pray for our city council, and particularly we pray for um, council member Jerry Ransom. I pray that you would bless him. I pray that you would encourage him. I pray that you would give him a mind and a heart to lead in such a manner in his council position that he provides good care for the members of this city. I pray that you would give them wisdom that's beyond their understanding. I pray that you would help every council member to not approach councils in in a way that is um, self-seeking or um, with other motives, but I pray for just purity of motive to to genuinely uh, serve this community. I pray that you would guide them in that. I'm thankful for sort of the plurality of wisdom that you've put together within the council and pray that you would bless, encourage, and guide them. Lord, we also bring before you this morning um, some extended family members in in Louisiana that are um, dealing with the effects of lots of flooding. We pray for Delma and Dickie Thornton um, and the other uh, community members of Denham Springs. Pray that you would comfort them in this time where there's really not much that they can do. Um, Everyone has water in their houses and they have to wait for it to recede before they can begin the cleanup process. And so I pray that you would comfort them during this time where they feel a bit helpless, they're feeling depressed, they're feeling confused and frustrated and tired. I pray that you would multiply their rest and encourage them in their spirit, and I pray that um, if our church has, is to have any role in coming alongside them and helping them, that you would guide us in that as you see fit. Lord, bless our time in the Word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> For the last seven weeks, we've been in this sermon series on spiritual gifting, And this week, our focus is going to be on the spiritual gift of giving or contributing. So last week, I got to delve into the exciting world of administration. And this week, I'm talking about giving. So if you can't get fired up about that, there's something wrong with you. In Romans 12, chapter 12, verse 3, that's going to be our text this morning, it says this, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So though so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. If you have not been with us through the duration of the first seven weeks of this study, a couple of important points that you need to know this morning that we just drew out from the text are that The body of Christ is made up of many members who have different gifts. Everybody has a gift, and the purpose of the gift is to build up other people, to serve others, to to use that gift to edify and encourage, not just affirm, but to edify and exhort and encourage others. So there's no one here this morning who can say, I don't have a gift, because if you're in Christ, you, you do have a gift. As well, none of this makes any sense if you don't see yourself as a member of a body, There's no room for anyone here to say, I don't need them and they don't need me. Those are important foundational truths as we continue to dig in this morning. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So these gifts that we have were never intended to be sat on or just thought about, but in fact to be used. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving... The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Our focus this morning is the one who contributes with generosity. Some of your Bibles may say the one who giveth with simplicity. We're going to dig into that original language and see, well, which is it? Is it simplicity or is it generosity or do they have something to do with each other? Up front, as the guy preaching this morning, I want to be very honest in the reality that I'm not a very good gift giver. Some of you may be able to relate. I'm just not a very good gift giver. I really wish I was, because it's always a real dejecting thing when you think you are, but it turns out it was kind of a flop, you know, when you give someone something. I think maybe I've grown over the years, but I'm still really actually not very good at it. It was always a bummer around Christmas time at our house growing up. Because while I would search for hours and hours for the mediocre gift, my little brother was always Mr. Thoughtful. I'd be all like, hey, hey, mom, I got you this thing for your kitchen, like a George Foreman grill or something lame like that. My brother would be like, oh, hey, Mom, I found all these little picture frames from Grandma's house, and I decided to fill them with pictures from our childhood and turn them into Christmas tree ornaments for your tree, since you gifted us our ornaments as we each began our families. (laughs) Thanks, brother. (laughs) And then we'd spend the next hour reflecting upon the pictures and remembering our childhood while the appliance sat unappreciated in the corner. (laughs) Almost every Christmas, me and my other two brothers would grieve the moment that our brother Jeff would put us to shame with his thoughtfulness and generosity. One Christmas, I think I got my mom some new house shoes or something like that. And my brother, the same Christmas, literally got my mom a bunch of handwritten letters from orphans in Haiti whom my mom had purchased school supplies for. (laughs) And then he included pictures of those orphans utilizing their school supplies. Enjoy your house shoes, mama. (laughs) Last year, I got my father a couple boxes of ammo, because I'm thoughtful like that. That's how we roll. got him a couple boxes of ammo, and my brother got him a huge plasma cut steel sign to be placed at the entrance of a piece of land that my father had recently inherited from his father. I kid you not. Here's some ammo, and here's a ridiculously huge, expensive steel-cut sign that says Sutton Point that will no doubt live on for generations (laughs) who will see that sign as they enter that piece of property. And as if that was not enough to add salt to the wound, as we rolled our eyes and felt the shame that came from his thoughtfulness and his generosity, my little brother then pulled out a bag and presented each of us. With a small version of the same sign to go in our offices and workshops, no doubt as a reminder of how much better he is than we are. <laughs> I share all that just to let you know up front that studying for the sermon has been a challenge, has got us stretched, uh, corrected, and encouraged me through his word. I have far more often been on the receiving end of thoughtful gifts than on the giving end. But it turns out that gift receiving is not a spiritual gift. Some of you need to hear that just right up front this morning. It'd be nice, wouldn't it, if it was like, you know, I, I have the spiritual gift of receiving, and I hope that you who have the spiritual gift of giving are feeling generous today. It's not how it works. There is no spiritual gift of receiving. There's only the spiritual gift of giving along with the others. At first glance, this gift seems a little bit hard to pin down. As I was preparing for the sermon, it, it's the spiritual gift of giving, seeing as how God has told us not to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing, and that those with this gift usually exercise it privately, it's probably one of the least observable gifts in the body. You don't often hear people say, did you hear about my sizable donation? Yes, tell me about the heart that was behind your sizable donation. That's not usually how it plays out. People who exercise this gift usually do so quietly and privately. We do see the effects of the gift when people are taken care of. But the exercise of it is usually unseen. So my first thought in the sermon prep was, well, this is going to be a short one. Uh, If you have the gift, you should probably give some stuff to people. And if you have the gift and I don't, you'll probably know better what that is than I do. So y'all have a good morning. We're going to close it with that and say our prayers and, and go on. Now, as I kept digging, I was actually very encouraged and blessed. As I looked at the original language and I read the commentaries of men far wiser than myself... I found myself convicted, and I found myself blessed, and I'm hoping that's where we also land together this morning. First, I found that when we give, we're called to do so with generosity. When we give, we're called to do so with generosity. The original word here is simplicity. So you might be thinking, well, which is it? Is it simplicity or generosity? But in the ancient school of thought, they were, you couldn't disconnect them. They went together. You couldn't actually be generous unless you had the simplicity of mind that was so satisfied with Christ that your heart would lead you toward generosity with others. It indicates simple. Here's a lot of alliteration for you early in the morning. Simple, single sincerity that is without self-seeking. It actually says that in the concordance, all those letters. It's simple, single sincerity that is without self-seeking. When we give, we're to do so with the sincerity that is not selfish. The generosity of copious bestowal. I like that. Write it down in your notes because it's awesome. The generosity of copious bestowal. Not cheapskate giving. Not token giving. Copious bestowal giving. Bountifulness. For from sincerity of mind springs liberality toward others. What we're getting at this morning is that when giving, motives matter. Your motive absolutely matters when it comes to exercising the spiritual gift of giving. The Holy Spirit will never lead you to give with a heart that expects something in return. The call is to be big-hearted and open-handed because our generosity towards others is the product of Of God's generosity toward us. I'm gonna say that again because it's one of the key points of the morning. Our generosity towards others is the product of God's generosity towards us. He gave us a spiritual gift of giving so that we can then give to others. We love God because He first loved us, but what we find in the gifts is that we love others because He first loved us. So, for a moment, what I'd like to do is consider God's generosity towards his people. Over the years, through the generations, I want us to take a little, almost a treasure hunt this morning and look at about three or four different texts where we look at God's generosity towards his people and what the effect was of his generosity towards us and those generations who have gone before us. We're in Romans 12 right now. Romans 12 is the massive imperative that is the result of 11 chapters of indicatives. So as we see this gift that we have, and we see this gift that we're supposed to use to build others up, what we know is that this chapter in particular is the product of 11 chapters that have often been called the greatest letter ever written. A whole bunch of details about God and what he has done for us in Christ that leads to how we respond. It's the result of what happens, this chapter is the result of what happens when God gives his grace to people, bringing them from darkness to light, from lost to found, from dead to alive. The indicative is God's generosity and the imperative is our generosity. What we have to observe is the generosity of God towards us and what we do with that is we are to be generous towards others. Ours overflows from his When we're made alive in Christ, it changes the way that we view our possessions and our provision, which is what we're going to look at here briefly. First, we trust God for our provision. When we realize our deep need of God and we receive what he offers in Christ, we no longer view provision as something that's completely up to to us. Our culture is obsessed with provision. That's why this is important to understand, because you're not going to get this message anywhere else. The kinds of things we hear our obsession with provision, and we actually have the audacity and arrogance to think that we, it's all up to us when it comes to provision. With each child that I have, the government reminds me I should probably make more money when I go to do my taxes. <laughs> when we adopted a little girl, I actually was told by a loving and kind family member that I wanted to choke, why'd you choose a girl? Don't you, how are you going to pay for all those weddings? Are you for real right now? That's your first thought? How are you going to pay for all those weddings? We're obsessed with provision. But when we receive the grace of Christ, we realize our bankruptcy and how ridiculous it think we think how ridiculous it is to think that we are in charge of such matters. We no longer view our provision as something that's up to us, rather we see that not just some, but all provision is from God. Scripture says, what do you have that you have not been given? What do you have that you did not receive? So when through such provision we acquire possessions for those who are in Christ and been on the receiving end of his grace, we hold to them more loosely. But holding to them loosely isn't enough because God says, give it away. That's where we're going this morning. A life of simplicity. Give to others with simplicity or contribute to others with generosity. So let's continue to explore the generosity of God. Turn to Exodus 36. Exodus 36, towards the front of your Bibles. If I asked you to just spend a few minutes thinking about what God has already done in the book of Exodus at this point, many of you could come up with a pretty hearty list. The setting as we go to Exodus 36 is this. These are the realities that we observe with God as we try to figure out what effect those realities have on his children. The setting here is that God has redeemed his people from Egypt, God has appointed Moses to lead them, God has instituted the Passover, listen to all the generosity of God, God has led them through the wilderness and God has guarded them in the back as they went, God has parted the Red Sea for them, God has provided bread from heaven, God has brought forth water from a rock, God has given the Ten Commandments, and now it's time for them to do something. It's time to build the tabernacle where God will dwell among his people. He gives them specific directions for how this place of dwelling is supposed to be, how it's supposed to be built, and much like building a custom home, you find that the costs add up quickly. What God calls us to is a costly endeavor, not a cheap one. The cost's add up quickly. This is not going to be cheap. So there's these two master craftsmen that everyone needs to know, Bezalel and Aholiab. I wanted to name our kids Bezalel and one Aholiab, and my wife vetoed it. But they are the master craftsmen of the tabernacle. They're in charge. And so Bezalel and Aholiab are two master craftsmen who are going to be in charge of these details. And so Moses calls these two guys to himself, and look what unfolds in verse 2 of chapter 36. And Moses called Bezalel and Holiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. This is very much run in parallel with spiritual gifts. God does something in them. He stirs their hearts, and he gives them abilities that they did not have before this. He gives them an ability to serve in a way and a heart to serve in a way that they would not have had it not come from God. And so all these people are coming together, and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning. So it wasn't a case where Bezalel, Aholiab, and everyone else got up and gave a guilt trip and said, hey guys... We're still a little short. I'm gonna need you to reach down deep in your pocketbooks and think about how much you love Jesus and give accordingly. This was not a guilt trip. This was not pressure. These are free will offerings. To such a degree that in verse 4 it says, So that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. You hear that? So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. I'm convinced that this was the first and the last time that you would hear those words from church leadership. (laughs) Guys, guys, it's too much. Can you imagine if our deacons are passing out the little satchels to collect our Are offering, and about halfway through, they're like, Okay, uncle, these things are way too full. That's what's going on here restrained from giving. This may be the first and last time we've heard that, but this type of giving is what's fitting when we have been on the receiving end of such generosity from God. This type of over the top willingness to hold loosely to our possessions. Yes, in what you give here, but also in what you give out there when you're at work, when you engage strangers, when you're considering your workmates and your neighbors. This kind of generous giving is very appropriate for people like these Israelites who have been on the receiving end of an abundance of God's generosity toward us. So when God is generous toward his people, his people, at least in this instance, had to be restrained from bringing. Just ask yourself, has there ever been a time where you just took it a little too far and had to be restrained from giving. Turn to 2 Corinthians 8. I want to convince you that this is not just some Old Testament phenomenon. 2 Corinthians 8 is a letter uh, to the church in Corinth giving them guidance on what we are supposed to be as the people of God. What is this New Testament church supposed to look like? And in 8, 1 through 5, we see something about this generosity and this giving that's supposed to be indicative of who we are. In 2 Corinthians 8, it says this, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed In a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, in any setting almost other than this, that sentence doesn't even make sense, right? So I'm going to read it again, and I want you all to just think about it as almost like a math equation. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, well, those don't usually go together because usually joy goes away in affliction, right? Well, apparently not here. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy plus their extreme poverty equal An overflow in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. When's the last time you begged earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints? And this, not as we expected... But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God, to us. There's at least two things for us to consider here. First, notice that the grace of God results in a wealth of generosity in spite of the circumstances. The grace of God results in a wealth of generosity in spite of the circumstances. What we have to see here is that the way that happens and the reason that that happens is because a wealth of generosity was never designed by God to be contingent upon your circumstances. Some of you may be sitting here pretty overwhelmed with the circumstances. The circumstances aren't good. The bank account is low. The cupboards may be bare. Or you may just not have as much as you used to have at some point in your life. And what God is showing us here is that the way that a wealth of generosity overflows in that moment is because that wealth of generosity was not contingent simply upon your circumstances. It was contingent upon the grace of God, which is never lacking. It was contingent upon a God who was so attentive to the needs of his people that even when they have very little, they were willing to give it because they would say, I trust God. If I give this, way, I trust that God's a God who can give us what we need. I trust I'm not going to die of hunger and exposure to the elements. I trust him. A wealth of generosity because of God's wealth of generosity. Second, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to others. First to the Lord and then by the will of God to others. When we get these things out of order or when we take one of these details away, we make a real mess of trying to help people. Have you ever tried to just help someone in your own flesh and you have... Uh, uh, not given any thought to what God wants to be done, and you didn't necessarily give yourself first to God. You're just going to be the guy who fixes the problem, and by the end of the process, no one wants to talk to you anymore. They're tired of your fixing abilities. We can't get these out of order. Give yourself first to God, and then by the will of God to others. Social justice without a gospel foundation is empty works that aren't about God. Social justice without a gospel foundation are just empty works that aren't about God. But giving yourself to God without at some point willing to be poured out for others, it's unproven faith that's lacking in good works. So you can't do one without the other. You can't just give yourself to helping people without first giving yourself to God because then it's all about you or it's all about them. But then on the flip side of the same coin, you cannot give yourself to God And expect that you are so busy being given to God that you cannot lift a finger to help anybody else. There are many parents who have been frustrated with their children after the mission trip, right? They get home from serving others, but they won't even clean their room. And it's a frustration. And the the idea there is, is, how could you not help here when you're so willing to help there? This picture here is... Giving yourself to God without at some point willing to be poured out for others is just unproven faith. There's no good works there. No one here is called to just be the spiritual guru who sits and does nothing. Our faith is a faith of action, and the generosity of giving is where we see a lot of it. So the grace of God results in a wealth of generosity in spite of circumstances, and when we give ourselves first to God, we can trust him and his will to to give of ourselves also to other people. As Paul is explaining these dynamics in this letter to the Corinthian church, he, he says something pretty profound in the next chapter. Look at 9, just probably the next page over in your Bible. Chapter 9, verse 6, 2 Corinthians. He's been talking about giving. He's been talking about this collection for the saints. And here he says, the point is this. If you hear that in a sermon, usually that's when you pay close attention. The point is this. We've talked about these details. We've observed these movements. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, your motive matters. God loves a cheerful giver. You cannot be doing your giving in a reluctant manner that is under compulsion. Look what it says in verse eight. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may, you may abound in every good work. So when you're considering the good work that you're called to by God, and if you have that feeling like, I just don't have what I need to do it, go read this verse and see a God who is able to make all, All grace abound to you so that you have all sufficiency in all things at all times. God kind of covered the basis for us in generosity, didn't he? We can't say, I can't be generous because God wasn't generous enough to give me enough time or enough resources to actually love that person. God reminds us, no, all, 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 all. Every piece has been taken care of by him. Verse 9, as it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. It means God has given you resources. And he says, not only have I given you these resources, but I'm going to multiply those resources for the good of my kingdom. God says, keep your eyes on me as you give to others and watch what I do with those resources. The same God who fed a bunch of people with a kid sack lunch. He says, watch what I do. Trust me, it's still a faith endeavor. That's why it's not circumstances. You can't just wait until, okay, now I have enough and I'll give. Now I have enough and I'll give. Because here we see that God's saying what's going to be needed is something that I'm going to have to multiply, a work I'm going to have to do even with the resources I have given you. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. It is kingdom work, this generosity of giving. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This is not a health and wealth message. Do not misread this passage and think that it's saying that as long as you give some stuff away, God's just going to make you rich. He's already made you rich. Don't sit here and hear this message and think, you know what? I'm going to give some stuff away. I'm going to be super generous. And God's going to load me up. He's already loaded you up. He's already made you rich. He's already abundantly blessed you. He's already showered you in godly generosity. So he calls us to this kind of a life. He's going to do much more than make someone rich for being nice with their stuff. The promise here is a much more eternal and a far less fleshly promise. Your ESV study Bible states, God's promise is that he will use his people and their resources as instruments of grace for the salvation of others. God's using you and the resources that he's given you as instruments of grace for the salvation of other people. So there is a significant connection between the salvation of others and our willingness to help in practical ways with generous hearts. This is what we can expect when the grace of God enters our lives. We can expect that these are the kinds of things we'll be motivated in when the grace of God generously enters our lives. Finally, turn over to Acts chapter 2. It's to the left. Acts chapter 2. These are the early days of the Christian church. This is the last example we're going to look at of God's generosity towards his people and the effect that it has. In Acts 2, we see God giving the Holy Spirit to his children for the sake of the forward movement of his kingdom. We see Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And then we see this note about the fellowship of believers, those who were gathered together in those early days of the Christian church. Acts 2, verse 42 says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I think one source of our lack of generosity towards others is maybe a lack of awe in our soul. When things are going according to God's plan, you as a believer should be the kind of person who is not so distracted by trivial matters in our culture that you lose sight of God and the awe that that creates in your heart. We should have all in our souls. And look what happens when we do. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here again, the generosity of God results in a people who have what I want to I share with you. It's a phrase I, I, heard, I read in a book called The Freedom of Simplicity. When God has this generosity and, and his people are changed, we're changed in a way where we now have a carefree unconcern for our possessions. Write that in your notes. A carefree unconcern for our possessions. That author goes on to say, When the dynamic presence of God breaks in upon a sufficiently prepared people, there is an unguarded sharing that is thrilling and almost frightening. Have you ever experienced that? When the dynamic presence of God breaks in upon a sufficiently prepared people, there is an unguarded sharing that is thrilling and almost frightening. There's a phrase that we often use around here, and if you've been here for any length of time, you've likely heard us proclaim that God knows our deepest needs before we voice them. That's generosity. God knows our deepest needs before we voice them. We have seen the ram in the thicket, right? We've seen the ram in the thicket. Abraham led Isaac up the mountain, and God had already provided the sacrifice. In fact, just just reverse a little bit, zoom out a little bit. What was the deepest need that they had? They needed a sacrifice as Abraham's leading Isaac up the mountain. And there's a ram that was in a thicket, so the ram was in the thicket. was this thing that was provided, but if we zoom out a little bit, we can in fact see that God had already provided the thicket that would be strong enough to ensnare the ram, as well as some kind of a situation where this ram got ensnared in the thicket. God knows our deepest needs before we voice them. Right now, he is at work providing for you in ways you don't know that you need the provision. We've gathered the manna in the wilderness. Well, we're leaving Egypt. How are we gonna eat? That's a big issue for a bunch of people, right? God provides manna, the deepest needs they have before they're voiced. We've seen God go before his people, staying a step ahead of them in the wilderness while still covering their backs. We've even heard heard God's call to let our requests be made known to him, but we've also heard the reality that there's nothing unknown to him. Your God is so generous that he allows you to let your requests be made known to him, but that's not because he was clueless before. You can't get that wrong. Don't think that God's waiting to just hear what your requests are because he has no idea what you need. He's so generous and so compassionate that he knows your deepest needs before you voice them, yet he still says, I'm your father. Tell me what you need. Full of compassion, he looks at us and says, Let your requests be made known. That's for you, not for him. The generosity of God is a result of the deep compassion that he has upon us and the attentiveness that he pays toward every detail of our lives. This is why the call to give to others is coupled with the call to do so with simplicity and singleness of heart. When we're called to give, we're called to do so with simplicity, generosity, singleness of heart. If our generosity towards each other is a product of the generosity of God towards us, here's what I think that means. I think it means... We should be walking so closely with one another that we know our deepest needs of our, of our brothers and sisters before our brothers and sisters voice them. I think that's what this means. Like a mother with a child. Like the way spouses know when the other one needs a break or needs prayer or needs encouragement. We've received this generosity of God, and I think what it means is that we are supposed to walk with one another so closely, so attentive, that we actually know each other's deepest needs before those needs are voiced. We can rise to the occasion with generosity before generosity is asked for. A lot of you are students who are going back to school tomorrow. And I know that for kiddos, one of the stresses is, am I going to like it? Am I going to fit in? Am I going to have any friends? Is it going to be okay? Am I, just am I going to be okay? And I want to encourage you in your young faith, Spend tomorrow focusing on the other people in need rather than focusing on yourself. Teachers. Some of you teachers are going to have children in your class that don't even know how to express their needs. They have such hard backgrounds that they couldn't begin to express what they actually need if if they really had to. And what I want both of you to remember tomorrow is that it is the love of Christ that enables you to meet the needs of those who have them. The love of Christ will enable you and prepare you to consider and watch and observe and know and genuinely love people enough to be able to watch and say, you know what, here's what they need. And then you give it to them before it's even voiced. Presenting generosity before it's asked for. This way of living towards other people cannot happen if our main focus is ourselves. I almost went without saying this this morning, but you can't live like that towards other people if you are entitled and self-seeking, and worried most about you. Christians should be the least entitled people on planet Earth because of the generosity of God. We should be the least assuming of things about ourselves because of what God has already done for us. Simplicity is never stumbled upon. Rather, it's the product of being so utterly satisfied with God that we cannot help but hold more loosely to our possessions be far less concerned with our own needs and thus focus on the needs of others and the ways that we can bless and comfort them. What this forms is a radical community of faith where needs are met in the church so that the church can be generous toward those outside of the church as a result of our collective satisfaction in Christ. God's promise is that he will use his people and their resources as instruments of grace for the salvation of others. So when you're trying to help someone, and you're trying to provide for someone, you're trying to be generous towards someone. Just remember, it may not just be a practical issue; it may be a salvation issue. God may be doing something far bigger for that person through your generosity than you realize. The type of giving being talked about here is far more than the giving of advice. It's far more about a token donation. It's far more about when someone asks for something and you you reply, "You know what? I'll pray for you." Y'all ever done that? Someone comes to you and is like, man, we cannot pay our bills and we are hungry, and the Christian has the audacity and arrogance to say, brother, I'll pray for you. 1 John chapter 3 says, when you have the ability to meet the needs of others and you don't do it, you don't have the love of God in you. In the original language, the kind of giving indicated is one that stresses giving something that's part of and precious to the giver, as if part of the giver resides in the gift. I want you all to hear that again. When you look at what these words are that are being used to explain how the Spirit manifests Himself in people to meet the, gen- the needs of others in a generous manner, what it means is that you don't just give stuff away that doesn't matter to you. That's called spring cleaning. Let's give all this stuff away that we don't care about and that we don't use. That's not generosity. It's good. I mean, there's a lot of needs, so that's good. But the kind of gener- generosity and giving that we're called to is a kind where when you give it to someone... It is still precious to you, so precious, in fact, that part of the giver resides in the gift. This is important for a couple reasons. First, what we see is that our motivation for giving to others isn't because we no longer see our resources as precious, but precisely because we see them as precious. A lot of times we have sort of a skewed view where it's like, you know what, my car is dumb. My house is stupid. All my possessions are ridiculous. I don't even care anymore. I'm just going to start giving stuff away. And we try to convince ourselves that we don't care about our stuff so that maybe we could become a little bit generous and give something away. That's foolishness. You're supposed to care about it. That's what makes it generosity. We see our possessions as precious. Our view of time, our view of possessions, our view of money changes when we are acted upon by God. We have a carefree, unconcern for those possessions because of God's generosity, not because we see them as unimportant. That same author says this, At the heart of God is compassionate concern for the broken and desperate. At the heart of God is compassionate concern for the broken and desperate. By means of the Old Testament law of gleaning, he placed into the economy of Israel provision for those who, for whatever reason, had become disadvantaged we read about Ruth and Boaz, a kinsman a redeemer. We read about these different stories and we see the Old Testament law of gleaning. And gleaning, in short, there's a lot of other details, but in short, the Old Testament law of what was called gleaning was that there would be someone who had a big field and they would have a harvest, they would work that field, they would sell part of the harvest to, to provide money for their family, and then they may utilize part of it just to survive with the family. But then there were other people who didn't have that for whatever reason. And in the Old Testament law of gleaning, it meant that those people could walk through that field and just get what they need for the day. They could walk through that field. That's not your harvest, but you can take some to get through. You're not allowed to take 25% and harvest it yourself. That's theft. But you're allowed to get what you need. If you're hungry, you're allowed to eat that. If you're without, you're allowed to take that. Old Testament law of gleaning. God placed into the economy of Israel provision for those who, for whatever reason, had become disadvantaged. Interestingly, there seemed to be an almost holy indifference about whether or not the person deserved to be poor. A holy indifference about whether or not the person deserved to be poor. The simple fact that the person was without was sufficient reason to provide for his or her need reminds me of Luke 6:30 Give to everyone who begs from you and of him who takes away your goods don't ask for them back again The Christian should be so satisfied with the Lord so trusting of the Lord that why should I give because they asked What if someone steals my stuff just let them have it Really I don't think like that Like if y'all are thinking wow he does that no I don't It's hard This is difficult. This is a moment where we have to be really honest with ourselves. Give to everyone who begs from you? That guy at Walmart that is there every blessed day begging? Really? That same rotation of four people who are working the system? Really? Someone steals my stuff? Let them have it. Really? Really? Yes, really. It's challenging. The things I'm preaching about this morning are far more radical than the life I lead. But I think that's why we have the word to challenge us, to stretch us. We were once the broken and desperate people who God showed great compassion toward. That tempers everything. We were once the broken and desperate people who God showed great compassion toward. This is why the church must never abandon the call toward the broken and the desperate in their own cities. The broken and desperate in other countries. That you may not think you can help in any way, but if you dig a little deeper, you'll find out you can't help. There's ways. The church is to take good care of one another, but never to the exclusion of those outside the church. If God's generosity begets our generosity, then our compassion and concern for the lost will only grow as God's grace increases in our lives. The more we experience the love of Christ, the more we will be led to share it with those who have never experienced. So if I'm honest this morning, I don't always have holy indifference when I see someone begging or asking for money. I think it's something to pray for, but I don't always have it. My heart usually goes to the concept of being a good steward because who knows where that money will ultimately be spent, right? Any beggar on the corner of any city at any intersection... It takes me two seconds to look at that person, and rather than seeing someone who is begging in need, I see a potential liability, because while I'm called to be a good steward, and if I give it to them, it's probably going to go to drugs or alcohol, and so if I don't know exactly where it's going to go or the reason that they're in their situation, you know what, I'm just going to keep the window up and be a good steward. Go me. It's ugly. If I'm honest... Good stewardship, sometimes, not all the time, I think you're called to not be a moron with your money. But sometimes, good stewardship is just a cover up. It's a convenient mask that hides the identity of a self centered heart. I really just want to ignore the need that I see. I'm not calling us to be fools but I think we're called to be pretty close. I think as a people, we could maybe do with a little more abandon and a little less reservation without breaking on foolishness. As I was working through this and considering just the, the desire that I have a lot to ignore the need, because I got plenty of responsibilities. Don't worry. I'm going to keep driving. I'm going to go home. I'm gonna get, I got kids. I got bills. I got food that has to be prepared. I got sermons to preach. There's plenty of other things to keep my attention, so I want to often ignore the need when I see it. And as I was working through this, the Lord led me to Luke 16. Please turn there. Luke 16. I'll warn you ahead of time, this is a very, very sobering illustration. If you're a person who uses good stewardship as a mask to cover the identity of a self-centered heart, this is a very sobering illustration. If you don't remember the last time that you considered anyone's needs and actually provided for them, this is a sobering illustration. But the reality is, this church is full of big-hearted and open-handed people who Give and give and give and bring meals and clothes and money and food and also continue to give in their offerings regularly on Sundays. So this isn't a big guilt trip, but even if you're that person who is who's moving in a faithful way, this is still a sobering illustration. Luke 16, verse 19, the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Just it what do you think it looked like? What do you think that guy's life was like? A rich man clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Quite the difference between the rich man and Lazarus. And cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. A kind of anguish so profound that you would ask the most lowly person you ever knew to just dip their finger in water and put it on my tongue because of the anguish of the flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. Uh, us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. you imagine the torment, not only of the fire, but being able to see the blessing that the other is experiencing and knowing it, is, it has been made that you will never cross over into that? That's part of the torment. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear from them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, No, they won't. If they do not hear Moses... And the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. He is in anguish, fiery anguish. He sees the blessing that another one has that he, he let go of, that he, that he did not have and would never have. And not only that, he had thought of his five brothers at home. And he says, if you send them a dead guy to warn them, they'll listen. Seriously, an apparition. Send them someone who's dead so that they'll tell them something and they'll, they'll remember it. And Abraham says, no, they won't. They haven't listened to God's messengers. There's no phenomenal, sensational thing that's going to g- grab their attention. They already have what they need to make the decisions that they need to make in their life with the abundance that they have. This picture is very sobering. What I want to point out here the rich man was not the cause of Lazarus's plight. In fact, The rich man doesn't seem to have done anything to make Lazarus' situation worse. The rich man's offense was that he simply ignored the one who was in need. That's the offense, is that he ignored the one who was in need. And a fitting penalty for such an offense in the eyes of God was eternal torment and separation, fiery anguish. Some of you today may be like that rich man, and some of you may be like his five brothers who need to listen to God, who need to consider the generosity of God. It's simply not okay to ignore the disadvantage when you have the ability to help. It's never okay. So our generosity is an overflow of God's generosity. And remember that definition that I shared just a few moments ago, how we don't give things away because they're not precious to us anymore, but because they are precious to us, and the kind of giving we give is where We're giving this thing that means something to us, yet part of the giver resides in the gift? How fitting that we're to give to others as though part of the giver resides in the gift. For is this not exactly what God did to us in Christ? Is it not exactly what God has done for us in Christ? Consider how Hebrews describes Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. No doubt, God's greatest gift towards us is one that is precious to him. There's no doubt that God's greatest gift to us, Christ, we, we can take it so for granted. It can be so commonplace. Yeah, he gave his son for your sins. He gave his son the radiance, the glory of himself, his exact imprint for you. That is a generosity that is unmatched and will forever be unmatched. So was God's gift to us precious to him? Absolutely. And there's no doubt that the giver resides in the gift. as the exact imprint and the perfect representation, setting a standard for our generosity towards others. There is no generosity without genuine satisfaction in Christ. And Christians should be the least entitled people ever and the most generous. Let's pray. Lord, I confess, in light of the truth this morning, there are realities that I need to walk in that I'm not walking in. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your son. Thank you for giving us the gift of Christ, the exact imprint of your nature, the radiance of your glory, that we might live, that we might not have to be in the same plight as the rich man in Luke who was tormented and who wished for others to not be in that torment. Lord, I pray that as a result of your word that we would have awe in our hearts, that we may even be restrained from giving because we are so overwhelmed with your generosity that we cannot help but overflow to others with it. Lord, I have no doubt that you will guide us in this and grow us in this And that's why we humble ourselves before you this morning. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we take the supper in 1 Corinthians 11, we have direction on what that looks like, what we're supposed to do during this time. In 11.23, it says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, Concerning the body and blood of the Lord, motive matters. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. This morning, I encourage you to do two things as we distribute the elements. First, examine yourselves. If there was ever a gift where we could use more abandon and less reservation, if there was ever a gift to grow in because we grow in our understanding of God's generosity towards us, I think it is this one. Consider if there are any ways that God is calling you to be generous towards someone else and pray that he would guide you into how to move in that. The second thing I want you to do as we distribute the elements, as we take it in remembrance, is consider the profound generosity of God. And just spend some time thanking him for his gifts, thanking him for the gift of Christ. Let's distribute the elements. I want to be careful this morning not to try to insinuate that the generosity of God is something that we just need to try to grow in a little right now. It's what we will worship Him in, 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 in eternity. It'll, it should never be common to us. When we consider the gift of Christ, there should never be a point in this life or in the life to come where it's like, yeah, that was good. What else? There is no what else. There's nothing more abundant. There is no greater generosity. Even this morning, as I, as I encourage you to examine yourselves regarding these things, you wouldn't even have the opportunity to do that if not for Christ. Christ gives you the opportunity to consider your sins all the time, to repent of them, and to move in holiness. So hopefully this morning, with, with thankful hearts that are being made more generous, we can take this rightly. Thankful hearts, take and eat. Take a drink. Lord, as we continue in worship, I pray that you would not have just part of our hearts, but our whole hearts in worship. We love you. We humble ourselves before you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.